My name is Dave Dempsey, and I've lived in the Great Lakes region all of my life. In 2004, I wrote a book published by the Michigan State University Press called On the Brink, the Great Lakes in the 21st Century. It's a look backward at the history of the uh, origin of the lakes and their mistreatment by humankind, and then the comeback of the lakes in the 1900s, especially since 1960. And I look forward to the problems they face in the future. The reason that the Great Lakes are worth writing about on a global level is that they are an enormous percentage of the world's surface freshwater. Most of the uh, freshwater resources in the world are locked up in glaciers, but of those resources that are uh, available to humankind for use, 18% of the global total is in the Great Lakes. Lake Superior alone has 10% of the world's surface freshwater. So in many ways, what happens to the Great Lakes affects the supply available to all humankind of water. It also affects an incredible ecosystem that we have just begun to understand the richness of. The lakes are big enough so that if you drain them and poured their waters over the 48 contiguous United States, we would all be under nine and a half feet of water. It's a very enormous resource, and it's a gift of the glaciers that retreated from the region about 9,000 years ago. The beauty of the lakes is apparent to most who travel to them. You cannot see across the five Great Lakes. They are as big as inland oceans. They contain a variety of fish species which generate billions of dollars of economic return every year. And they are also the platform or the transportation route for the shipping industry which brings products across the lakes, everything from grains to iron ore, from Duluth all the way out to the oceans. Also, the Great Lakes serve as a drinking water source for over 30 million Americans and Canadians. So obviously, the lakes are of vast human use as well as beauty. Right now, the Great Lakes are at a transition point. They can either continue to recover, as they have been doing for the last 30 years, or they can begin to decline dramatically. And that's why I wrote the book, and that's what I want to talk about. The lakes really cannot be taken for granted, and the lessons of the past are that humans too often do take them for granted. I wanted just to, to tell one story about how people used to look at the lakes back before the cleanup of the 1960s and 70s began. A friend of mine named Bill Taylor was a boy growing up in western New York and told me this story. He said, I grew up in the state of New York within sight of Lake Ontario. If you'd said to me then let's go fishing in Lake Ontario, I'd have said, are you crazy? The harbor, if you called it a harbor, had about 20 or 30 slips, but it was never filled. To fish, you had to go out beyond the dead alewives. By mid-May, you weren't thinking about going out on the water with all the algae blooms. What did people think about these awful conditions? They said, that's the price of progress. That's just the way it is. When I grew up, the Great Lakes meant nothing to most people. You could come to our high school and you can get money to save whales out in the ocean. We'd never seen a whale, but you couldn't have gotten one cent to help the Great Lakes. The personal value of the lakes was near zero for most people. I could have thrown the rock from the front door of our house and hit the lake if I threw it hard enough, but my parents built a heated in-ground swimming pool for us. It was what you'd call a technological fix. Instead of fixing the lake, we got a pool. 
One of the most amazing changes in my lifetime has been the comeback of the Great Lakes since the 1960s. So that story really just talks about how humans pretty much wrote off the Great Lakes at one point, um, and yet we're able to help bring them back. We've invested over $10 billion in the United States side alone to treat sewage going into the Great Lakes. We've banned some of the worst chemicals that were contaminating them, including DDT and PCBs. But now we're facing a whole barrage of new threats that require an immediate response or else the lakes can be in trouble. And those threats are many, and here are just a few of them. Number one, the change in climate poses risks to the Great Lakes. One computer model, which may or may not be accurate, says that by the end of the 21st century, Lakes Michigan and Huron could lower five feet or more, which would have enormous impacts on the navigation industry and drinking water supply, as well as the fisheries of the Great Lakes. Another problem is growing water demand. If the Great Lakes are 18% of the world's available surface freshwater, and if countries across the globe are beginning to face water shortages as they are, the question becomes at what point will the Great Lakes be seen as a reservoir to be tapped to meet those needs. Most people in the Great Lakes region, I think, would support an emergency use of Great Lakes water to save lives. But what we're facing right now is an industry, the bottled water industry, that's beginning to come into the Great Lakes and capture water, not for humanitarian survival, but for profit and convenience for consumers, and that's a concern. Maybe the most imminent threat, though, is one that the shipping industry itself has helped contribute to, and that is the pollution, biological pollution, essentially, of non-native aquatic species entering the Great Lakes. There are more than 180 non-native or alien species in the Great Lakes, many of which are causing disruptions to the fishery and costing millions or billions of dollars in efforts to clean up their byproducts. The real threat of biological pollution is that it may, and it's beginning to in some areas, undermine the health of the Great Lakes and lead to a collapse of the very valuable sport fishery, as well as causing conditions that are unattractive and in some cases uh, very undesirable, including increased algae blooms. Finally, we still face some pollution threats, even though we've dealt with uh, most of the sewage and many of the chemicals. There are now large areas of the Great Lakes that are suffering because of fertilizer pollution. The problem that we're facing now with pollution comes as much from people's individual practices as it comes from corporations or cities. People dumping fertilizer on their lawns often end up adding too much fertilizer and, in a sense, enriching and fertilizing the Great Lakes instead of their own lawns. Same with pesticides. We need to advance a stewardship ethic in the Great Lakes that will help these people realize their impacts on the lakes and avoid those impacts. So to me, the story of the Great Lakes is not really done. It's a story of magnificence. It's a story of abuse in the 19th and early 20th century. And it's a story of a comeback that began in the 1960s and in some ways continues today. But that comeback is at risk right now because of these new threats. And in many ways, the future of the Great Lakes is in our hands. In some ways, the Great Lakes are the reason we have in the United States something called the Clean Water Act. There are many other parts of America's waters that were badly contaminated in the 1960s 
but it took a fire on a river in the Great Lakes system to really dramatize how bad our national pollution problems were becoming. In 1969, the Cuyahoga River at Cleveland caught fire, and it became a symbol of the abuse and degradation of our national water resources. The thought of a river, uh, a body of liquid, catching on fire was almost comical to some people, but certainly disturbing to most people. And in some ways, that fire on the Cuyahoga River is considered to be one of the catalytic events for the Clean Water Act, which passed in 1972, and has contributed so much to our uh, comeback of water quality. We began in the 1970s to look at the Great Lakes much differently. Until that time, we looked at them pretty much as ponds, isolated ponds, although very large ponds, that were not interconnected. But in the 1970s, scientists began to teach us a different way. And it's important, I think, to see how at least one of those scientists uh, demonstrated in a very vivid way the limits that the Great Lakes system could tolerate. The scientist I'm talking about is Jack Valentine, who was an Ontario Canadian citizen who headed a committee in 1978 that was looking at something called the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. His committee recommended that the governments of the Great Lakes region start adopting and pursuing an ecosystem approach to the Great Lakes. It sounds very technical, but the concept simply means to consider humans as part of a complex natural system that includes air, water, land, and other living things, and that governments should address the decline of the lakes as a whole, considering the possibility of unanticipated consequences, rather than trying to treat symptoms such as individual pollution sources. Dr. Valentine was a modest and even introverted fellow, but decided after his first experience in helping shape Great Lakes policy that he should put caution aside because of his concern for the Great Lakes. In July 1978, Valentine presented the arguments for the ecosystem approach to a body called the International Joint Commission in a very unorthodox manner. Standing in front of the commissioners who are appointed by the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Canada, Valentine produced a bottle of whiskey and four glasses from under a table that served as a bar for him. He poured one shot of whiskey into the first glass, two shots into the second, four into the third, and eight into the fourth glass. Commissioners, he said, you and our leaders of government and industry believe that constant economic growth is a good thing. I'm sure you're right, so I'm going to drink the whiskey the way you say our society should grow. He told the commissioners he would drink one glass each 10 minutes and began making his formal presentation. He discussed growth as an exponential function, meaning that constant growth over a period of time would lead to continued growth. Just like his body, Valentine said, the Great Lakes Basin had limits of adaptability to the stresses of population growth and technology. Dr. Valentine took a second drink of whiskey, blinked, and cleared his throat. He explained the ecosystem approach, citing acid rain, road salt, and toxic chemicals as examples of problems affecting water quality that couldn't be addressed by considering only the water. Activities on land also affect the water, he said. After the third drink of whiskey, a reporter in the front row of the audience gasped loudly, My God, it really is whiskey. Growing more theatrical as he ingested the liquid, Valentine demonstrated that there is no away in nature by crumpling a piece of paper and throwing it to the floor in front of the commissioners. Dr. Valentine remembers, After the fourth drink, my hands instinctively went to my chest as the whiskey burned down my throat. 
After regaining my breath, I spent the better part of a minute looking unsuccessfully for the final sheet of my speech. The Canadian co-chair of the Great Lakes Research Advisory Board came to his assistance. Knocking himself on the head, Valentine realized the final sheet of his speech was the one he had wadded up and hurled to the floor. He read it, as he said, cool and collected to the commissioners. Later, the commissioners verified the validity of Valentine's stunt by sniffing the bottle of whiskey, which did contain whiskey, although it was diluted by tea. The chair of the Canadian section of the IJC, or International Joint Commission, told a reporter that Valentine's presentation had been a simply staggering performance. Although comical to some, Valentine's presentation actually helped galvanize support on both sides of the border for adopting the ecosystem approach. If you think of the Great Lakes, the five lakes and the channels that connect them as one great body, just like the human body, then you do recognize there are limits to what abuse it can take and that the system as a whole is affected by activities, uh, not just individual parts. And that's what Valentine was trying to demonstrate. Right now, the Great Lakes are at the center of a major debate that affects not just the Great Lakes states and the Canadian provinces around them, but also the entire people of North America and really the people of the world. There are two major issues. One is, how will we continue cleaning up the lakes and restoring their health, as well as the health of the human beings who depend on them? A committee appointed by President Bush two years ago came up with a plan calling for $20 billion in United States spending to help restore the Great Lakes over five years. That spending probably will be necessary, but so far none of it has been appropriated. The other major issue is what to do about the quantity of the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes states and provinces fear that water-starved areas of the United States and other countries may come reaching for Great Lakes water to supply their needs. And that makes sense in light of the fact that the Great Lakes are almost one-fifth of the world's surface freshwater. But these states and provinces also believe that the water should remain where it is as a functioning ecosystem. And they have developed a compact called the Great Lakes-St. Lawrence River Basin Water Resources Compact that would set very tough limits on the shipment of water outside the Great Lakes region. Interestingly, that agreement, although it does prevent pipelines and other shipments of water, does not prevent the shipment of large amounts of water out of the Great Lakes in bottles for commercial use. The fate of these two issues is really tied up in the fate of the Great Lakes and, to some extent, the fate of humanity. One of the issues that we wrestle with in the Great Lakes Basin is that there are many problems that face the lakes, and yet the public does not seem motivated right now to devote care to the lakes as a whole. Many people will turn up for beach cleanups to remove debris, balloons, cigarettes, and so forth every spring and fall. Many people are committed to restoring and protecting particular areas of shoreline, and some people take actions to reduce pollution. But by and large, it's not a major or priority concern for the public. So what might bring people together around the Great Lakes? What might unite and strengthen these many unconnected individual and community feelings and actions into a shared sense of urgency and a commitment to act in unison? Perhaps it will be, as it too often is, an emergency or the awareness of looming disaster. Governments often respond to the pressure of voters insisting on action after catastrophes or near catastrophes. The Great Lakes are really many places united by water. Should that water fall below and stay below the record low levels that have been seen in the past, especially in the presence of mild winter weather, citizens may be shocked into action by climate change and driven to make personal and social changes to protect the water they love. 
same might occur as exotic fish overwhelm the native, or as a new breed of chemicals assaults ecological and human health. In the meantime, these citizens can go about honing their relationship with the Great Lakes themselves. As they do, they must not be deceived as the pioneer generations were by the apparent vastness of the Great Lakes. Even though you can't see across them, it is we, the people who are vast, and the lakes that are vulnerable. In the 1980s, scientists and sociologists and just plain Great Lakes advocates came together to talk again about that concept of the ecosystem approach to protecting the Great Lakes. Perhaps embracing that approach as individuals will do more than anything to help us save the lakes. As they said, quote, the ecosystem concept recognizes that you as an individual are new, yet you are not new. The molecules in your body have been parts of other organisms and will travel to other destinations in the future. Right now in your lungs, there is likely to be at least one molecule from the breath of every adult human being who has lived in the past 3,000 years. The air around you will be used tomorrow by deer, lake trout, mosquitoes, and maple trees. Same is true of water, sunshine, and minerals. Everything in the biosphere is shared. There is a simple yet profound difference between environment and ecosystem. The notion of environment is like that of a house, something external and detached. In contrast, ecosystem implies home, something that we feel part of and see ourselves in even when we are not there. A home has an added spiritual dimension that makes it qualitatively different from a house. It is a happier place because of the caring and sharing relationships among its inhabitants. Professional consultants typically tell politicians these days that environmental issues are secondary, important to address through some reforms, but not something to stress. As one said, in both Canada and the United States, the environment has a paradoxical position in the political structure. It's more noticeable than in many other countries as a political issue because there's so much talk about it, but it's really less significant. The political results have neither been as dramatic as those in Europe nor as comprehensive as those in places like Japan. It may be that we need a complete overhaul of the system when we may come to realize the next time we have a big environmental disaster. For almost 200 years, governments have been failing the Great Lakes. For the first hundred of those years, they promoted the exploitation of the lakes with the consent of the governed. But today, after two generations of consistent support for their protection, shame-proof governments, often captured by exploitative industries, often betray the lakes in quiet defiance of what the public wants. While the inhabitants of the region have an ambivalence of their own, their voices increasingly express a bedrock commitment to the lakes they call home. There's no escaping the fact, no matter how modern generations might seek to evade it, that governments are tools of the people subject to the popular will if the people choose to exercise it. The last two centuries of Great Lakes instability caused by greed and folly as much as ignorance have penalized us all with periodic economic hardship and pollution. But there are signs that people, if not the governments, have the capacity to learn from this history and have learned from it. Now it is time for them to instruct their governments on how to do so and how to protect the Great Lakes. If they act, they can show the world. <laughs>